Here are some uh, unambiguous facts about John Fitzgerald Kennedy. <clears throat> I feel a little silly because some of you know more than about John Kennedy than I do. Some of you lived through his administration and his rise uh, to power and his assassination. And uh, I want to get your feedback and hear your voices, those of you who uh, lived through it. I did not. Here's some facts, though, that are undisputed. Number one, he was aristocratically raised. He was wealthy and privileged, translated spoiled. Um, number two, he was aloof, in many cases completely detached from what average people made. He would constantly ask people when he met them what they made. Like if they said, I'm a meal worker or I'm an accountant, he was like, what do you make? He had no idea what average people made or how much money people had and in many cases what things cost completely detached from economic reality of the average people he was constantly borrowing money from his friends because he didn't carry cash he's like can you give me twenty dollars i need to buy this you know never carried cash never completely aloof and detached number three like many politicians he made promises and uh, engaged in rhetoric uh, and said things he did not believe in order to get elected. Excuse me. He was perpetually uh, and uh, uh, obsessively uh, unfaithful to his wife. He was ambitious, he loved power, and at times he was ruthless in his approach to political opponents. Number six, he literally and almost single-handedly saved the world in October 1962. Even as nearly every advisor, every institution of government begged him to go to war. Number seven, he also began, even to his own political risk, the process that culminated in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the most sweeping legislation since the Emancipation Proclamation. The reason I begin the class by giving those contrasting facts about this man is that I believe that sometimes the voices that resonate for justice and peace uh, and the way of Jesus, uh, sometimes those voices are deeply broken and deeply flawed. Sometimes they are hypocritical. Uh, I, I tend to believe that some of the greatest people and our particular history, American history, are some of the greatest paradoxes in terms of their character. And I, I believe it's important for us as we talk about these, some of these people, everyone, again, from Thomas Merton to Mother Teresa to John Lennon to JFK. <clears throat> and if you look at even some of the people we won't talk about, Martin Luther King, Thomas Jefferson, who we will mention um, a lot of these people who have the ability to be the best of who we can be as people also exhibit characteristics of the worst of who we can be. And sometimes they do it in the same moment. And that represents not only the paradox of the human character, how what we're capable of on the good side and what we're capable of on the bad side, but I think it also 
there's a particular iteration of that in the American character. That's important for us to understand and come to grips with if we are to come to grips of what it means to be Americans and Christians in America. And uh, I think it's important for us to talk about that, that darkness and even um, recognize it in ourselves. People uh, like JFK and Martin Luther King, their sin is what makes them human. Their message and the courage in which they implement that message makes them divine. And again, those things coexist in tension. And the more that we can recognize that and hold those things in tension with, with those voices, the more we're able to uh, discern the truth uh, that they have to offer us and then even maybe understand ourselves within uh, the church context as well um, some more. So good and bad. Just to talk a little bit about, <clears throat> there's two, basically I want to talk about two different aspects of John F. Kennedy's I, I don't know why, uh, as enamored I am, as I am with 18th century history and ancient history, those of you who know me know that I've talked about a lot about ancient history and that connection to the church, uh, ecclesiastical artifacts and, and all of that. Uh, I came that to that myself. I think I was deeply influenced and um, have a bent toward 1960s political history because of my mother, because she lived through it. Um, her best friend was killed in Vietnam across the street, stepped on a landmine. My brother went off to war in the, Gulf, the first Gulf War and did not come back the same. Um, she has always talked about what it was like growing up in the 1960s. And I, I, I find it fascinating. I grew up in North Alabama and, um, for some reason, I've always been drawn to what was both, you know, the music, the political environment, um, the kind of economic upheaval, everything that was going on in the 60s has always been interesting to me. So as a big part of that, uh, I have studied and read deeply about uh, John F. Kennedy. And I was drawn to him like many people because of his charisma. But <clears throat> as I've become older... Uh, and matured in my faith, I've also uh, become drawn to him because of his courage uh, in the face of uh, in in the face of uh, warmongering. To to be honest, and <clears throat> so just to give a little background on all of that, those of you who grew up in kind of post World War II, uh, post Korea. Uh, understand what it was like and how fearful the country was and the environment was in that kind of beginning of the Cold War period in the mid-1950s, uh, early 1960s. There's, a, there's really an important parallel between kind of the, the uh, environment of where people were really consumed by fear. That it was fear of communism, fear of uh, nuclear war, uh, during that period uh, to where we are now. There, the country seems to be uh, consumed uh, with fear. Uh, decisions are being made, our leaders are being chosen, all that. There's a lot of decisions being made that are based on fear, and there is a true and uh, important parallel between then and now. 
And so it makes it, I think, even more relevant for us to talk about what was going on. Then President Eisenhower in his farewell address, who remembers that? I don't I keep looking at y'all like, <laughs> y'all are the oldest ones. I don't mean that at all. I just keep looking. I think I am the oldest. Well, do you remember President Eisenhower's farewell address? You're not that old, right? <clears throat> he said... Um, he, to quote him, he said, In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether salt or unsalt, by the military-industrial complex. Uh, he had come to understand by the end of his administration that war is great business. Uh, war created jobs. It uh, fueled fear. Uh, the nuclear age and nuclear holocaust and all that that um, brought in terms of the national consciousness uh, had fueled this powerful military-industrial complex. And he began to understand, even in the end of his administration, that those powers were beginning to encroach on both the legislative process and the executive decision-making bodies. And he actually said that in his... He not only told Kennedy privately as he came into office and warned him against this, he actually said it publicly in his... Um, farewell address. Kennedy was elected in 1960. Uh, the, his Joint Chiefs of Staff immediately wanted him to go to war in Laos uh, because of the communist uh, influence and, and invasion of Laos. Instead of intervening, Kennedy uh, pushed back against that and signed a neutrality agreement along with 13 other nations, including the Soviet Union. Um, that was his kind of first crisis or butting heads with the Joint Chiefs. And then, of course, you have Cuba, um, the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was uh, all of his advisors, Dulles, uh, LeMay, all those guys were telling him, look, this will be quick and easy. It will be an easy uh, victory. We guarantee success. He, he thought the plan was horrible, but he went with his advisors uh, and invaded or attempted to aid an invasion of Cuba. Uh, and the Bay of Pigs, of course, invasion was uh, a terrible um, defeat. It was not successful. And uh, immediately after that, the Joint Chiefs asked him, well, you've got to follow this up with airstrikes uh, on Castro, on Cuba. And he refused to do that, um, refused to be baited into that, and even made, again, his, if you remember his public speech about the Bay of Pigs, he took full responsibility personally for that but then told himself he would never be trapped by the Joint Chiefs again. Six months into his administration, he went to Vienna. I don't know if any of you remember this or remember this about his administration, but he went to Vienna very quickly to meet with Khrushchev, the um, Prime Minister of Russia, or of the Soviet Union, uh, hoping to begin talking about nuclear disarmament and uh, ratcheting down tensions. He was met with bombast and diffidence uh, upon his return, the Joint Chiefs met with him and offered him a proposal for a first strike uh, nuclear uh, attack of the Soviet Union, a preemptive strike. They literally said this is the only way that war is inevitable with the Soviet <coughs> Union and the only war that we look at now is nuclear war. And so the only thing we, the best option we have for you is to preemptively attack the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons to get rid of them once and for all. They, they actually, <laughs> this is their best decision. They met with him. He stormed out of that meeting and told them, and we call ourselves the human race 
it, it upset him terribly. That was followed up by 1961, uh, retired General Lucius Clay, who had uh, taken a civilian post in Berlin, launched a series of unauthorized provocations against the Soviets. Khrushchev began an extraordinary secret correspondence with JFK, and this has been just discovered in the last few years because the letters have just been declassified. But um, the top Russian spy in America, uh, Agent Gorgi Bolshakov, not very good with Russian names, uh, he was actually a friend of Bobby Kennedy's. Bobby Kennedy would have him to dinner. He began to carry letters directly to Kennedy uh, from Khrushchev. Uh, and th again, these 21 letters total have been declassified uh, in, in just the last few years. Uh, but in those letters, Khrushchev apologized for Vienna, said, I, I had to do that because of the establishment that is behind me. He also said at some point when the Berlin crisis happened in 1961, Khrushchev said, I, I keep backing up, but I can't back up any for, further because there's a precipice behind me. And so JFK began to understand that not, he was not the only one that was answering to this uh, powerful industrial military complex that Khrushchev also had to deal with that. <clears throat> so they had this uh, correspondence that went on and he, despite both the, despite the temperature in the country uh, of fear and despite this very powerful uh, military establishment that had taken hold in the White House uh, with his advisors, uh, he began to search another way, a peaceful way directly with uh, Premier Khrushchev. A year later, though, of course, in 1962, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, do you, any of you remember the Cuban? Were you alive? Yeah. You yeah, were? I mean, yeah. I was in grad school. I was afraid I was going to have to go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I just remember my mom talking about it, and I've studied it. I've read maybe a dozen books on the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's the, and, of course, I'm source document guy. I love uh, listening to the actual transcripts and reading the transcripts of what was going on. Then It's a fascinating uh, period, probably the most crucial 13 days in the history of the world. Uh, we were closer to complete annihilation uh, and during that two-week period than any other time in the history of the world. Um, and I, I won't go into all the details now, but suffice to say that every person, there were m many meetings between uh, Jack Kennedy and all of his advisors where he and his brother were the only two people in the room who did not want to either invade Cuba, which would have, in uh, retrospect, um, would have caused a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, or preemptively attack the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons. The only two voices in a room of sometimes 45 people, the top, his, not only his top advisors, his personal friends, everyone from Robert McNamara to Ted Sorensen, all the people that he was closest to and trusted were wanting to go to war. And he refused to believe that was the only way. Uh, not only understanding that um, kind of the group think of the military establishment, but also understanding what it didn't make sense to go to war. Go to war meant the end of the world. And he refused 
to believe that was the only path. And of course, uh, those of you who know the story, eventually that same Russian spy that he had communicated with Khrushchev with before, uh, he, he made basically a back channel deal to publicly said, you know, uh, finally that, you know, we would promise not to invade Cuba if the Russians removed the missiles from Cuba. And in fact, he did that, but he also promised to remove some of our missiles that the American public did not know about that were nuclear missiles in Turkey that were obsolete, but eventually he, he made a deal with Khrushchev and he did that. Khrushchev didn't want to go to war either, but they were both hurtling toward this exchange, but they were both uh, basically men of peace who worked it out um, and orchestrated uh, kind of the saving of the world. Uh, by themselves I, <clears throat> and let me run through this real quick the, the, the other part of JFK's endearing legacy to me and his courage is, um, has to do with civil rights uh, and it's kind of again JFK and Lyndon Johnson campaigned on the idea of civil rights uh, for African Americans they won the African American votes easily over Nixon uh, but once he got into the White House, he they kind of backed away. Civil rights is in the 1960s were, of course, a very toxic political football. And no one, you tried to stay out as much as you can, and that's exactly what they did. They retreated kind of into uninvolvement. Uh, after the, watch on, uh, the March on Washington, uh, the I Have a Dream speech from Martin Luther King, Kennedy invited those leaders to the White House and then said, yes, I'm definitely going to do something about it. He sent really watered-down legislation and then gave it half-hearted support, uh, and that died very quickly. Um, there, there was just not the political will, either from the White House or from Congress, to pass that legislation. But then two things happened <clears throat> that deeply changed both JFK and Bobby Kennedy while in office. One was the University of Mississippi uh, where the students tried to enroll there uh, and the Mississippi Governor Exchange. If you want to read something or listen to something really fun, the phone calls between Mississippi Governor and JFK uh, in 1962, I believe it was, was it 1962, uh, when they were trying to enroll those students in Ole Miss and Solaris, JFK really gets angry. It makes him angry. And again, it's because of his aloofness, uh, he was not really aware. He didn't really understand uh, segregation in the South. He didn't understand Jim Crow the way uh, a lot of the Southern politicians did. But once he figured it out, once he recognized uh, fundamentally how uh, wrong it was, he got really mad about it. And so um, what happened, of course, two people were killed during the Mississippi enrollments, and uh, he also federalized the National Guard uh, to help uh, enroll those students in Mississippi. And then the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for both JFK and Bobby Kennedy was the Birmingham, the, was the Freedom Riders. Um, and that combined with, you know, the Bull Connor water cannons and, and, and the children on national TV and again, a lot of people say, well, that was a political uh, convenience that, you know, which is what King wanted to do. He wanted to see, show this on TV, you know, to put the kids out there and Bull Connor shot them down with water cannons. He's like, put this on TV. The administration has no choice but to act on civil rights. Well, that wasn't necessarily true politically. 
but it did what it was supposed to do because it resonated with JFK and Bobby Kennedy personally. And after Birmingham, it was never the same for them. He federalized the Alabama National Guard. Uh, you know, George Wallace standing on the <clears throat> in the doorway of the University of Alabama. Segregation now, segregation forever. Uh, it all of that changed uh, kind of the heart of JFK. Once he understood the injustice of it all, um, he got serious about it. And despite the political uh, toxic, toxic nature of civil rights, he developed and basically wrote the heart of what became the 1964 civil rights legislation, which was real and meaningful legislation. It did not, uh, it did not mean equality for uh, all people and African Americans, but it did a lot uh, to that end. And although Lyndon Johnson gets credit for it, uh, it was JFK's law. It should be called the Kennedy uh, Johnson Civil Rights Act. He sent that uh, to Congress and um, had every intention of, of giving it his all to get that passed. Unfortunately, he was killed before that happened. Uh, he gave a, a civil rights speech on June 11th uh, that corresponded with the events in Birmingham, and I'll, I'll play that for you in a second, where he said that civil rights, questions of civil rights were prayer, primarily a moral question, uh, that it wasn't a question of legislation, it wasn't a constitutional question, that it was a question of morality. Uh, and it was, a, it was a turning point in his administration. Uh, he followed that up in the same month with what uh, I think Preston posted this week, his address, commencement address at American University, which is called the Peace Speech, and I'll play you a bit of that as well before we have some discussion. Uh, it is worth noting that John Kennedy was a Catholic, uh, and there had not been a Catholic president before 1960. Uh, and he was asked about that. I've talked to Lee about this before, and a lot of people think he threw his religion under the bus when you know he was asked about. It. He actually had a, a specific speech at a dinner about it, where he said, um, "Whatever issue is before me, you know, whether it's birth control or divorce or censorship or gambling, um, that he will make those decisions based on what his conscience tells him is best for the national interest, and not." by any religious pressure from any religious group. The church does not speak for me on any issue, and I do not speak for the church on any issue. Uh, and that if there's ever an issue where my conscience would be violated and what's good for the national interest would be violated, then I would resign my position, as I hope any conscientious public servant would do. Uh, that was partly rhetoric. Because what he did was he did make decisions. Uh, and, of course, I, I think he saw in his mind uh, when he made decisions based on his own uh, ethic, which was heavily influenced, again, by uh, the same influences that influence our ethic. Um, he, he saw those things in um, parallel to one another, uh, that they were best for the national interest, and they... they uh, were in direct conflict with his um, personal ethic. That being true in civil rights and in terms of being anti-war, it's hard to understand. Again, the kind of all of this in context, unless you really understand um, what it was like to live in the 1960s and how fearful people were and how powerful and 
um, influential uh, the military industrial complex was. I, and again, I think the best parallel is the time that we live in now. And uh, I, I just want to play some of the speeches because they're better than I can um, um, articulate. And then um, I'll play a little bit of uh, the civil rights speech first and then um, uh, a little bit of the commencement address. Okay, let's Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two fairly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students at the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal, and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. It ought to be possible for American consumers of any color to receive equal service in places of public accommodation, such as hotels and restaurants and theaters and retail stores, without being forced to resort to demonstrations in the street. And it ought to be possible for American citizens of any color to register and to vote in a free election without interference or fear of reprisal. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish his children to be treated. But this is not the case. The Negro baby born in America today, regardless of the section of the state in which he is born, has about one half as much chance of completing a high school as a white baby, born in the same place on the same day. One third as much chance of completing college. One third as much chance of becoming a professional man. Twice as much chance of becoming unemployed. About one seventh as much chance of earning $10,000 a year, a life expectancy which is seven years short, and the prospects of earning only half as much. This is not a sectional issue. Difficulties over segregation and discrimination exist in every city, in every state of the Union, producing in many cities a rising tide
men of goodwill and generosity should be able to unite regardless of party or politics. This is not even a legal or legislative issue alone. It is better to settle these matters in the courts than on the streets, and new laws are needed at every level. But law alone cannot make men seem right. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed? Yeah, and I just realized that we only have to... 1045, I hate that. We only have 45 minutes, so I won't play a lot. I, he goes on in the speech to say that he's sending this new legislation, historic legislation to Congress. This, it's hard to, again, uh, put into context how radical what he is saying in this speech is the to the time. That, uh, that's uh, June 1963, June 11th, I believe. Um, uh, and then I, I encourage you to go online and listen, or go to YouTube and listen to uh, his uh, commencement address at American University. It's completely radical. It changes the whole dynamic of our relationship with the Soviet Union and what our responsibilities are at that time and, and begins to, <clears throat> again, until his assassination, assassination begins to send uh, the tenor of nuclear arms disarmament armament uh, in, a, in a very positive direction. Uh, of course, all that ends with his death in Vietnam. Uh, and then, of course, the 80s, the Cold War kicks into a whole nother level with, with, um, with Carter and Reagan and all of that. Uh, but before we go, I wanted to ask, at least try to get some feedback and discussion. It's so hard to think about all of this within a 45-minute period, but... Um, I was going to ask the question, though. I got to thinking about <clears throat> JFK and Paul and thinking about, uh, it, first of all, is it hard for us to hear the voice uh, of people who have deep personal flaws and public sin and all of that, people who have a part of their character that is uh, broken, but on the other hand, they have a message and have a voice and have... Uh, courage to offer us on the other end. How hard is it for, to hear that? And I was thinking about Paul. It's like how easy it is for us to hear Paul's voice, and we don't know what his thorn was. We don't know what. What if Paul's thorn in the flesh was habitual adultery or fornication? We have no idea what that is. He just said that it was a messenger from Satan that was sent to him that he asked to be removed. Uh, but what if it were? Would that make us? more or less able to hear the truth of what Paul brings us. And so I, I, I wondered, just contemplating that question, what do you all, what do you all think about all of this? I don't know. Is anybody, yeah. Well, JFK, they kept 
you know, his sexual picadillo was hidden. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know about it until much later. Right, and right. A little but bit of the same thing with Martin Luther King. Right. His. The big thing with JFK was that he's a Roman Catholic. And, right. Uh, the voice of freedom out of Texas and other Church of Christ publications. I mean, they blasted right and left. Wow. Rome is going to control the United States. Wow. One of my most embarrassing moments was preaching a sermon that we shouldn't vote for JFK because Rome would dominate us and help you, West Virginia. I wish I could undo that. Wow. But uh, they just were feeding us our minds, I mean, so much. And, uh, you know, you think where there's smoke there's got to be a fire but that that was what we thought about jfk when, wow you know his sexual stuff they kept it hidden yeah it. it wasn't like today on the cable tv yeah that. jerry you can see. i was at hillsborough church on uh, june day in the may 1960 with baxter barrett baxter was gentlest most you know, most presentable spokesman for churches of Christ preached a sermon along those lines that that uh, we couldn't elect a Catholic because we'd be listening to Rome. And after the sermon, Joe Evans, a member of the Church of Christ from Smithville, who's a U.S. Fourth District Congressman, got up and, and took a, took the uh, microphone and took exception to what Axel uh, Barrett Baxter said. First time I'd ever heard people argue in church like that. Mm -hmm. But I think back about that. I got to know Joe Evans' daughters when I worked in Washington for the military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I've come to realize that Joe Evans is probably closer to right than yeah. My, yeah. my ideal that's a very bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Or what else are y'all thinking? Maybe I have to, to speak to your question, I think the breadth of time can kind of heal those mm -hmm. wounds. So, you know, maybe uh, Kennedy's sexual escapades weren't public knowledge at the time, but they certainly happened in the interim. Mm -hmm. And some people have used those to discount any good that he did. Mm -hmm. But I. But I think after enough time passes, you kind of look you look past some of those moral failures and just look at overall character and see mm -hmm. what he did. And I think that's true for Paul. Like, regardless of what his thorn in the flesh was, we know he was killing Christians. Right. And so, you know, if I was in the first century, I'm pretty certain I would have discounted everything Paul said because mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. But having had you know 1,900 years between and what Paul wrote down, mm -hmm. I'm able to somehow, I, I don't even do it consciously, mm -hmm. but somehow I, I can totally get past what Paul did, yeah. murdering people, and think he's, you know, second to Jesus and telling us how to, how to right. die. So, I, that's just a weird phenomenon. I don't know. If yeah. I think we, we have a tendency to, um, and maybe uh, those who are, uh, those in the church, it's amplified, but we have a tendency to uh, shut out voices that don't come from within 
uh, both when they critique us and when they are doing and saying things that resonate more with what our teacher believed and taught uh, than we do sometimes as the institution. And I think we, we for whatever reason, we, it, it is our tendency to be able to find things or flaws with their personal character or other parts of their message that don't resonate, resonate to be able to discount the whole thing. And I think that's an important awareness for us within the institution of the church to be able to be open to voices of critique and voices of truth that come from without the institution. Because God has a history of teaching us through the voices who we tend to listen to the least. And that, if you don't believe that, just read scripture. There, God has a perpetual history of doing that. So I think and part of the reason why I, this class is interesting to me is that it forces us to think that way, to think about maybe there, maybe there are some voices both in history and in uh, our culture that have a lot to say to us about us and about what we really say we believe. Um, I think that's imperative. I think JFK is one of those voices. Uh, I think John Lennon is one of those voices. And, and really, frankly, all the people that we'll talk about during this period. So, well, yeah, yeah, plug for yeah. Um, I'm not knowledgeable about Kennedy like Brad is, but about two or three years ago, I did read this book called JFK and the Unspeakable. And the subtitle is Why He Died and Why It Matters. And it tracks a lot of what Brad has shared with us this morning. Uh, about the letters between Kennedy and Khrushchev uh, and the way that Kennedy was resisting, you know, the military-industrial complex. Um, the author's James Douglas. He's a Christian guy. His Christianity informs his analysis of, of Kennedy and what Kennedy was doing. Um, also on Netflix, there's a mini-series about the Kennedys uh, that's, that's not bad. And I, and I just want to add real quick that next week we're going to have Lisa Sherman in here talking about the Syrian refugee crisis. And I think that's a really interesting parallel because Kennedy was so uh, adamant about humanizing the enemies, yeah. you know, humanizing the Soviet Union and not allowing us to think in demonizing terms that they're mm. somehow less than human. Mm. And we're right in the midst, I think, of another crisis for mm. our politicians, sometimes our religious leaders. Uh, not here, but you know, kind of out there, religious leaders, the big voices you hear, so much fear and so much demonizing Muslims, you know, whomever it might be. Um, and so this, I thought this was fantastic. Uh, if you want to take a look at it, so mm -hmm. thank you. For that. All right, I think aren't we aren't we out of time? Yeah, we're past time. So thank y'all for being here and being patient. Sorry we didn't have enough time to to get it all in. I don't know if that made the way around the end.